Hello and welcome to the April edition of the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and in a moment I'll be joined by my colleagues Chris Collins and Emma O'Neill. This month we've stopped to smell the flowers along the way, as they say. Is there anything more lovely than picking a flower you've grown yourself? Well, perhaps it's being the recipient of a bunch of flowers that someone's given you. Later on, Sarah Brown will be speaking to two professional flower growers who are members of Flowers from the Farm, an organisation dedicated to flower farmers supplying cut flowers to florists throughout the UK. Chris and I will be discussing seed sowing and how to get the most out of a trip to your local garden centre, as well as ruminating on the early signs of blanket weed in my pond. Then, our head gardener Emma takes her boots off and drops by to answer your questions on all things floral, including saving flower seeds and creating an organic flower garden that will be a buzz with life in just a matter of weeks. But first, I'm off to join Chris in our virtual potting shed. Hi, Chris, how are you? I'm very well, Fiona, how are you? I'm very well. I'm sorry I missed last month's podcast. God, blimey. That's okay. That's all right. You're full of the full of the joys of spring now, aren't you? Because we're really headed into it, aren't we now? Absolutely. I bounced back. I had the dreaded, dreaded COVID, but I bounced <laughs> I know, back. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're feeling well again. I was just going to ask, actually, how's the pond doing? Because I know that was a big project of yours last year, and that will be starting to wake up now, I should imagine. It is. It is. Actually, I've got lots of things I'd love to ask you about it. Um, it's looking absolutely stunning. Um, because it's very full, actually, because we've had lots of rain. And, of course, there's nothing, you know, the water likes better than, you know, having lots of lovely rainwater land in it and make it lovely and clear. Um, I'm slightly concerned that um, I'm going to have a bit of a blanket weed issue, so I'd like to talk to you about that. But the thing I'm most upset about, and I'm trying very hard not to take it personally, is I haven't got any frog spawn whatsoever. Because <laughs> I, mean, I, I hear it's a bit of a bumper year for frog spawn, isn't it? I mean, not in my garden, <laughs> isn't it? They've got to find their way in, I suppose. So you, uh, so you might have to just be a bit more patient. They'll certainly appear. They always do. I, I do have newts. I have newts all over the garden. So, oh, well, that's um, good then. Newts are a bit more rare, isn't it? You can go. Well, I've got newts, mate. You might have frogs, but I've got newts. <laughs> Yeah, that's the way to look at it. Oh, they're yeah, amazing yeah. creatures, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're almost prehistoric. They look like little yeah, dinosaurs. I love them. They are incredible. They really are incredible little little creatures. And the fact that they can do land and water. <laughs> they haven't made their mind up. Get the best of both worlds. <laughs> Just amazing. Really absolutely amazing. Yeah, so I, I don't know if you can give me any thoughts or advice around the blanket weed. I don't know if it is actually blanket weed. It's just that kind of green sort of intense stuff that so I can see it's already starting to appear. What can I yeah. do about it? you just got to take it out. I mean, you could, great compost. You can put it on the compost bin, no problem, um, and let it go on there and it rots down. I think that's it. I think the key is, is get it early, you know, before it starts to turn into a much more of a problem, I think. There's very little you can do. It like stalk, bring it in, don't they? Rather bring it in on their feet. and So it gets moved around quite easily. So just keep an eye on it. If you start seeing it appear, get it out, get it on the compost bin. Okay, all right. Well, it's good stuff, isn't it? As you say, it's full of nutrients, I'm sure. Great for the gardens. Think positive. <laughs> 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 How, how's it looking on the balcony chris well, it's, it looks amazing it's blazing with color I've, I've got all the daffs out there at the moment it's kind of comes in three phases so the crocus have gone over they were great they're the early ones and all the daffs have come up so i've got a lot of tete-a-tete which is a lovely little daff it's all i've packed all the baskets with that so it's just this like blaze of golden yellow right across the balcony and now all the tulips are starting to pop their heads up and that'll be the third phase so if, if it wasn't if the wind wasn't so cold uh through through the end of march into early april i probably would have been 
sat out there, but hopefully uh, that'll start to happen now. Are you worried about the wind? Well, uh, it's nothing new, really. I think that, you know, um, I always see April as the possibility of uh, into early May as well of that you'll get a cold wind to me it's the main enemy especially on the allotment because if you start to put tender stuff out even the tatties mate you put, you put your tatties in your earlies your second earlies I've got them in they will a cold wind will check those as well so it's kind of worth remembering to protect your plants if you have got them out maybe fleece them but don't put your tenders out your tomatoes your your runner beans those sort of things too early because a cold wind will check them so you're sowing right now i should imagine seed sowing i am well i'm hitting the i'm hitting the open ground sowing now and lots of it as well i will i'll drill sow all my salad crops or my root crops um all those again i'll put my hardy annuals in for my flowers so i will be preparing the ground for a lot of outdoor seed sowing okay so that's interesting and that's uh, inspiring me actually because uh, last year i created a bed that's got some perennials in it it's got some um, artichokes in it it's got some rhubarb in it um, and so i've gone for the chris collins tapestry planting model <laughs> <laughs> um, and so i will be drill sowing but i won't be sowing in drills i'll be sowing in circles or something yeah so it's a similar thing i suppose in a way we should uh, describe what a drill is isn't it i suppose because you hear all these terms don't you if you're like drills and stations yes. and thinning and if you don't know the game then it can be a bit confusing so what we're talking about is that what, when i say drill so what i'll do is i'll get my ground i'll give it a little fork over fluff it up i like to think of it I want to get it like the surface of an apple crumble. That's a really nice way to think about it, okay? So you've got this really fine tilth soil. I'll get the rake over it, and then I'll consolidate it. My consolidate it is I'll get on the ground with the back of my heels. Obviously, I'll do this in dry conditions and just take all the air pockets out. Give it another rake, and we've got the old apple crumble surface, if you like. I'll then put down a line. So I've got a garden line. I'll put that down for if I'm going to sow a crop, I'll put that down. The line's there, obviously, because I want to know what's germinated in mine and what nature's germinated. So you'll see that because of the yes. line. Um, otherwise, the weed seeds and your seeds will blend. And then what I'll do is I'll do a little trench. The rule, I would say, would three times the size of your seed is usually the depth. So if it's like a, a one millimetre seed, put it in at three to four millimetres. The packet will always give you this information. Always read the packet. And then I'll cover it over and gently tap the seed into place. A station is for the, the area where you actually sow the seed. So if the packet says to you, 25 centimetres apart, put your seeds 25 centimetres apart, they're called stations. I actually like to sow a bit thicker than that because I think mm -hmm. that what happens is if they germinate a bit more thickly, there's a bit of competition and I think that you get the tougher, stronger seedlings. And that leads to thinning, which means then I'll go along and I'll thin to the correct station. So I remove the seeds then and leave the stronger plants in place at those stations that will grow into their final crop. Um, so they also don't worry about pulling out small seedlings. They can go straight in the salad bowl. That's fine. No microgreens. We all eat those. So they can go straight in. And then the other last tip I'd give really is also is when you water in, turn the rows upside down on the watering can and water away, then over your seeds and back again. And that way you don't wash them out. So there's your drill sowing in a nutshell, really. OK, so for people like me who are going to sow uh, not in lines, What's your advice? Um, so, yeah, just as long as you're marking them, that's fine. Otherwise, you will, what happens is if you just throw them in the ground, if you broadcast, that's what we call broadcast sowing, what happens is you'll get germination, but you'll also get natural colonising plants coming in. You won't be able to tell which is which, basically. You won't know what to how to remove the competition. That is my problem every year. So you've just solved that. Thank you for that. You can tell we've got the professional versus the amateur here. <laughs> I have... Uh, sown a whole bunch of tomatoes and I even uh, sowed some aubergines and some chilies 
Um, they've all germinated. I'm really thrilled. I've got lots of different varieties. Some of them are seeds I saved myself last year, so I'm quite proud of that. They have all put out their lovely, you know, first set of leaves, you know, the kind of leaves that you see in, in the children's pictures. You know, you see those those beautiful sort of uniform pair of leaves that seems to happen on every single type of seed virtually. I'm obviously at the point where I need to prick them out. I kind of don't want to in a way because it's also neat and tidy. And I know when I prick out that they're going to take up masses and masses of space. But more <laughs> importantly, when should I genuinely prick them out for, for a chance of success? Well, yes, I'm right in the middle of all the pricking out um, with the same similar sorts of plants that you described. Always, I was taught, always prick out at the cotyledon stage. The two leaves you just described are the cotyledons. And the cotyledons are basically inside the seed before germination. And they come out of the seed and unfold. And that's why they don't look descript. That's why they don't look like what we call true leaves, the leaves you'll see later. They're literally the packed lunch of the seed. So what happens is they can come out, the cotyledons come up to the sun, they can start photosynthesizing straight away, and then the plant can crack on. So I like to prick out there. And the stage of the reason is quite simple, is I think that means that you don't check the plant as much. The plant's very small, you can be very, very delicate with it, you can move it on, and you're not checking. If you leave it till later and it's starting to produce true leaves, it's got a bigger root system, you're more likely to check. And when I say check, it means it will slow the growth down, more likely to slow it down. So prick out at cotyledon stage, um, always, always, always never handle anything by the roots or the stem. Always handle by the cotyledon itself. So get a dibber, get right under the seedlings, lift it up very gently, but always by the leaves. If you tear a bit of the cotyledon leaf, the plant will survive. If you damage the stem or the roots, game over, okay? And then you can plant it into an individual pot. Now, if you're germinating inside like I do, your seedlings tend to be quite leggy because the light levels are quite low and it's the light's coming from one side. So what you can do at a cotyledon stage as well, which is why I like, um, pricking out at that stage is I can bury it quite deep right up to its cotyledon up to its neck so it will produce roots off the stem under the ground and again you get a stronger plant but I think pricking out is very you know for bigger plants maybe like raw runner beans etc you can sow in cells okay because they're quite big plants but for the smaller stuff like lettuce and tommies and stuff I like to prick out I think it provides stimulation for the plant so what about those kind of seeds that you sow um, where you don't get that lovely um cotyledon stage you know so something like an onion or or a leek um and it's a teeny tiny seed yeah um, and actually when it comes up if you direct so it just looks like grass you know how do yeah, you yeah. deal with that that's an interesting one well I, I would i would sow them in situ if i was doing them indoors i'd sell sow them basically that's what i do for leeks and um and onions i like to sell so or from a bowl as well so i would direct sell them if you put them in a drill and sow them like i've described then you should again sow them quite thickly and then you can see them quite clearly and then you can thin out basically okay well i I'm 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 ticking my um uh my list off here, Chris, because I'm I'm delighted to say that I did sell so my leeks and onions. Good, off. yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's important to point out, I think, that you can sell so individually, which I do with some plants, and that but the plants that I'm gonna have quantity of, like maybe salad leaves or which you can die, you can drill so as well, but sometimes I start indoors, or tomatoes or aubergine, which I'm starting very early and can't be outside because of the cold weather, it's a good idea to prick them out because you'll have a little clump of them and then you can give them individual space. Absolutely. And we should just clarify what sell-so means. Yes, yeah. Which means direct, yeah, an individual pot, a pot all of its own. I'll give you a little tip as well. Um, actually, I always put two seeds in a cell and it's an old boy's tip. It's because you get a little bit of competition at germination and then I'll probably remove one and leave the strongest one in place. 
And if you don't happen to have a, a, a tray that is already divided up into cells, then egg boxes are brilliant for this, aren't yes, they? Yes, yes, certainly. Anything. As long as it drains, you're away. It's not a problem, yeah. Okay, so we've uh, we've established that we need to prick out, um, um, you know, quite early on actually, which is which is which is exciting because it's always something to do and feel like you're moving through the spring. Hardening off, of course. We just talked about a cold wind. We just talked about don't go too early. This hardening off phase is so important, and it's also really scary. So how can you give us some real talk through this? <laughs> yeah, it's another one of those terms, isn't it? If you read a book, you've got to sow and drills, do stations, thin out, then harden off. You're probably making people thinking, well, I don't know what you're on about. I might as well be talking in Dutch. But th- hardening off is a really, really important. And all it is is acclimatising. So that's the next stage for my in- uh, uh, indoor plants, my overseas my chilies. I'm going to start to introduce them to the fresh air gradually. But what I don't want to do is leave them out overnight because we might get a frost or a radiation frost. We've talked about when you get air, cold air or a cold wind. So if the day is quite fine, I have to do the major job of picking them all up, taking them outside, letting them have some time outside in the sun and then bringing them in again for the evening. Now, if you've got space, a much easier way to do this is to have a cold frame. And then what you literally do is you transplant them to the cold frame. You open the cold frame through the day. You close it at night to protect the plants. But that transition from the cosy life of a greenhouse or a propagator into being pricked out inside so the outdoor life, you can you basically you're phasing it between all the way between that, and then when you actually plant out your final planting late in May, when you know there's like no dangers of frost or cold winds anymore. And you've got to still keep potting them on through that whole period. I don't. I tend to because I prick out into uh, we just talked about into cells into multiple cell um, trays. I'm quite happy then to sit in there. If they do get a bit big and a bit root bound, yeah, I might move them. I'll call that as I see it. I think. Yes, yeah, so absolutely loads to sow and loads to do in April. It's really exciting. Of course, I'm also looking around at those things that are uh, coming through from last year, the, the perennials, the, the woody shrubs and things like that. So lots to start to get ready, isn't there? There is. And I wonder if you're a big herb grower. You must be quite busy with those at the moment. Yes, I am. I very much am. Um, so I have already sown my cinnamon basil, which has germinated and is just gorgeous. And I will just keep on sowing it. I've also got a lovely little pot of dill that's come through. It's possibly one of my favourite herbs. But I always say that about almost every herb. Um, <laughs> and I, I think for me, the thing about herbs is you can't lose. Just keep sowing them. Just keep, Because the beauty of them is they're edible at every single stage aren't they so you know you can eat them as a microgreen you can eat them as a mid plant you can eat them as a big mature plant you can eat them to flower you can eat the flowers you know you can't go wrong so just keep on sowing you know just continually sowing them um because you just get so much back from them um and actually they tend to be if, if you've not saved your own seed you tend to be able to get hold of um, herb seed in quite large quantities just costs nothing as well just costs pence it's it's brilliant I just love them they're just fantastic <laughs> so re- repeat sowing is the message isn't it because just keep repeat sowing you've got that constant supply of organic fresh herbs for the kitchen sounds good to me what about the um the older sort of the woody sort of perennial herbs like rosemaries and, and marjorams or, or the stuff that comes back every year got any techniques for those yeah i've actually never had a great deal of success with rosemary in pots actually i don't know whether you have but rosemary in the ground is just unbelievably re- rewarding because it looks incredibly mature you know very quickly so i've got two small rosemaries i put in probably five years ago they just look like they've been there forever they've had room to expand they're enormous just covered in beautiful foliage all the time but particularly plump and gorgeous right now and a silvery edge to it 
And the, these purple flowers, you know, they start so early. They just start to pop out. In, in January, they're still going now. The flowers themselves taste beautiful. The bees love them. Um, so, yeah, huge rosemary fan. I've also got one that's a prone rosemary that, that grows along the ground. Absolutely gorgeous. Also flowering. My thymes are just beginning to put their heads up. And actually, also, my marjorams are just coming through from last year. Some of my oreganos as well. I do get excited because their spring foliage is incredibly vibrant. These lovely little straight, you know, straight shoots that form this beautiful sort of layer. Um, you know, you brush your hand across. You know, if you go out now and rub the leaves, not much joy, I have to say. But I know in about three weeks' time, you know, you'll start to get the aroma. You'll start to get the flavour. You know, they're just a joy all year round. <laughs> Yeah, I can tell you're very passionate about them. You, know, you paint a nice picture. I, um, I'm sure, and I'm sure the, the food tastes very good in your kitchen as well. Well, and of course they are brilliant for you know for small spaces. Um, I mean, I've got a very very tiny herb garden, um, and it it just is it's absolutely filled. Um, uh, and they you know and they come back each year, and those perennial herbs do really really reward you. And and I know you've got them all over your balcony. You probably have more success with rosemary and pots than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite a tricky one. It like to be in the ground it's uh, you have to keep nipping it back you know just not stop it getting too leggy i find and it's interesting you mentioned there about buying them because you do you get these mass-produced basils in polytunnels that are all grown hydroponically or a lot of energy and, and resource goes into bringing up when you can just sow them quite easily and i suppose in a little way it's uh, it's that time where people will be going out to garden centers as well isn't it yes absolutely you know i, I i've got some very good local garden centers and I, and I love the idea that people will support their local garden center too but it's it's also that time of year where you want a bit of inspiration sometimes, don't you? And and actually just going into a garden centre, having a walk around, having a think, you know, you know what's not to love about that? Yeah, it's true. You got it. In a way, I suppose it's also good good to think about how you're going to um, include, you know, things that are going to help biodiversity in your garden, isn't it? That's one of the things we look for. You get a lot of stuff that maybe is a little bit blousy, but overbred and stuff. You want to maybe keep it simple. Um, are there any plants you're sort of thinking of for the garden this spring? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, isn't it? You don't want to get too carried away. It's a bit like being in a you know a sweet shop or whatever. Um, and actually, you do need to be kind of a bit aware and a bit wise about what you're buying you know particularly as you say those very blousy plants you know over hybridized you know we, we touch on um some of that later on we're talking about um about flowers and uh you know the ones that support pollinators and the ones that don't so i guess it is a question of walking around and and, and seeing what's native and, and and getting getting the best out of your shop and and you know getting your getting your money's worth in terms of supporting biodiversity but i mean one particular sort of area of the garden center that i always love is is the perennial area so so if you were in the perennial area of a garden center what, what would you be looking at well i've got actually what i was thinking about today it's not obviously going to be a couple of months away because a lot of perennials will just be emerging now but there's one called lithrium which is uh and a, 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 mainly traditionally a pond side plant but it's brilliant for the bees and the, and the butterflies as well love it and uh so i'd maybe like you say i'd err towards the stuff that's been locally propagated and locally produced and is in a peat free pot um obviously that's that's one of our big things, isn't it? A lot of garden centres get mass-produced plants. They're flown in from other parts of the world. So we can maybe do our little bit, can't we, by maybe supporting local growers who've grown stuff in much more sustainable conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, you know, if you are in a garden centre and you're looking at a perennial plant, well, that's a plant that's going to last, you know, for a long time. And it's going to be expensive. You know, it's going to come in a probably a five-litre pot, you know, and you're not going to get, you know, much change out of 
I don't know, 18, 20 quid. You know, that's a lot of money. Mm. Um, So if you were going to invest that much in a plant, have you got a particular recommendation? Well, that's it. I said certainly, I think if you wanted to do a native, well, one of my favourite shrubs is Viburnum opulus. Do you know Viburnum opulus? No, you tell me. Sounds lovely. I love all Viburnum, so I'm sure I'd love this one. Yeah, Viburnum opulus is a a native shrub. Um, It has these big, wild, sort of white pom-pom flowers, multi-headed white flowers. has beautiful, bright, bright, bright red fruits, the little birds love in the autumn as good autumn color but it's great also for the bees so it's a native shrub and it's one of those what i, I call them have you heard me use this term before it's a bit of a bouncer plant or a statement plant you can put it in a border mix your perennials around it and it kind of you can take out the corner a hard corner of a garden with it but it's a great native and uh, absolutely wonderful for our wildlife so something like that might be a good tip I think that's a brilliant tip because it, it's going on and on it's going it's going throughout the year and and you're getting you know, you're just getting pleasure from it all the time, and and not only you, but the birds are getting pleasure from it, the insects and all that. So that that's a that's a great recommendation. Okay, and of course, it is also the time of year for people to go and buy lots of bags of compost um, at their garden centre. Um, have you got any thoughts around that? Again, you know, value for money is 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 you know, you stand in that compost area and you see a three for a tenner or whatever it is. You know, well, that's probably not anymore, is it? <laughs> a bit more than that, but you know. Can you give us some advice on that? On that, well, purchase? certainly. I, I mean, my big advice is don't skimp. I mean, now, luckily, because we've made our argument so strongly, and everyone's cottoning on this. There's more and more peat-free stuff out there, and it was interesting, really, because I, 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 you know, when I started organic gardening professionally, I remember twenty um, odd years ago when I was at um, Westminster Abbey, I, I used peat free compost then and it was no good it just didn't work and now it's much much more improved you know there's not really a a reason not to use it it is a little bit more pricey but you know look at it this way if i buy a pair of shoes for 50 quid they're going to last me a year if i buy a pair for a tenner i'll be buying another pair in three months it's kind of that analogy you get what you pay for so i just think if i had 20 quid the biggest investment i would make would be on a decent bag of peat free compost because i know i know it's going to pay for itself 50 times over through the course of the year with all the food and stuff and the flower and the pleasure it's going to give me. And what else would you use to fill up your pots on the balcony then? Because if you're not, you're obviously not going to fill every single pot with, you know, gold standard, you know, um, uh, highly expensive. Sure, yeah. Well, so then, how, do you, how do you fill your pots? Well, then you're into, then I'm not. So then I can just go multi-purpose. Once my plants are up and going, peat-free multi-purpose is fine. You know, a few bags of that. And also because it's pots, I'm not, if it's not like open ground where I've, in, where I've nourished the soil with compost and I don't, you know, I don't need to feed it because I've worked on it over time. Because it's a pot, I have a feeding regime. Otherwise it doesn't work out. So I'm quite happy to move on to my multi-purpose peat-free once I've, uh, I've got my plants established. I suppose an awful lot of people um, who are listening to us make their own compost and and know how precious it is. I mean, you know, we know in a kind of domestic garden setting, you can't make tons and tons of the stuff. So I suppose there's something about, well, you know, if, if you're eking out your lovely, beautiful homegrown compost, then the same applies, doesn't it? Too? Absolutely. It, it, it's the it's the gold. It's black gold and brown, dark brown gold for gardeners. It You know, it, it's the centre of everything. It's our very foundation stone. Um, and actually, we mentioned garden centres there. If you're going to go into a garden centre and buy something that isn't a plant this spring, buy yourself a compost bin if you haven't got one already. That's a brilliant plan. Absolutely. Well, as usual, Chris, I've learned a huge amount you're full of all the joys of spring, all the tips, all the advice. Thank you so much. It's really great to hear from you. Look, look forward to our chat next month. Always a pleasure to talk, Fiona. Cheers. 
Now, if you stopped and thought about the word farm, what would come to mind? Perhaps animals or crops like wheat, maize, barley, fields of vegetables. I wouldn't necessarily think of flowers. For me, those are grown on nurseries. But recently, we sent Sarah Brown on a lovely assignment on behalf of the Organic Gardening podcast. She's been investigating the growing movement of flower farms in the UK. Sarah spoke to two people, Debbie Scott, owner of Five Flowers, and Joe Wright, owner of Organic Blooms, who's also chair of an organisation called Flowers from the Farm. I have in front of me a gorgeous bunch of flowers sent to me as a gift of love, and they are a joyous thing. But I'm learning there's a dark secret behind the cut flower industry, not least the environmental impact. So I'm joined by Jo Wright, a flower grower herself and chair of Flowers from the Farm. Welcome, Jo. Hello. Lovely to see you today. Ah, it's lovely to talk to you. Joe. the lilies and the stocks in this arrangement that are filling my room with scent, but can you tell us a bit more about where bunches like this come from? And in fact, how the majority of flowers are grown and imported? Of course, it's my pleasure to tell you about this uh, dark secret, as you say. Um, so many people don't know when they pick up a bunch of flowers that most of them, about over 80% of the flowers that we buy are imported and they're grown um, usually in either Ecuador, Colombia or Kenya. They're our biggest um, source of flowers. They often go through the Dutch markets in Holland. So they're auctioned there and then they come into the UK. And it, it was near a 90%. Um, we're, we're, we're edging towards a few more British flowers in the market, which obviously I'm going to be talking to you about later. Um, but yeah, the majority are grown in warmer climates. Now, some people say, well, that is less of a carbon footprint because there's no need for heat or light which is true but the, the 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 worst impact on the environment of these flowers is that there's no regulation around pesticides herbicides fungicides because it's a non-food product they tend to be sprayed even more heavily because we don't want pests coming into the country and people um just don't know the residues of chemicals that are on these beautiful flowers and i think if you did know they it does take the edge off their beauty if you could see what they're, what is potentially on those petals. Yes, you're absolutely right. And also, it doesn't take much leap of the imagination to imagine where they're grown. I know you mentioned Kenya, for instance, which has its own issues with water supply, for instance. So there's a large water footprint, isn't there, in growing flowers? Absolutely. And actually, Lake Naivasha in Kenya is where most of the flower farms are based around. And there is definitely a, um, a connection to water pollution from these farms and the general population are suffering. It's not black and white. It's definitely so many shades of grey because um, obviously the economy of these countries does depend upon these flower farms, but there is there are so many injustices that are created also um, out of flower growing and not least the, the way people are employed. So employment practices are not what we would wish them to be. So we've got the water usage, we've got chemical usage, we've got air miles, and then there are the human rights issues as well. So suddenly your bouquet of flowers isn't quite so beautiful. <laughs> I must say I'm looking at that vase with different eyes now, Joe. But actually, isn't it time we thought about flowers as we increasingly do about food? Asking where and how my flowers are grown and maybe to value seasonal, fresh, locally grown varieties rather than those that have been imported. 
Absolutely. People have got the food thing now, the seasonality. And as organic growers, we're always saying, actually, it's about the soil. It's about the seasonality. It's about so many more things. So, yes, people need to start questioning. And people are. The the um, the consumer nowadays is a lot more questioning. They just don't. The, the information isn't all out there. You see, So we they have to dig and they have to really not believe everything they see. What is wonderful, we've been growing cut flowers organically for about 15 years. And the message message is getting through. We are now getting mainstream florists. We're getting big organizations contacting us saying our customers want organic cut flowers or, or British flowers, um, although we're hearing organic a lot. And this is from big main players. I had this week a big florist in London contact us. In fact, the, the supply does not now meet the demand, which is a lovely position to be in, really. So they are questioning it, but there's still many more people that need to just to question their purchases. I think it's because it's so easy to grab from the garage forecourt, for instance, or from the supermarket shelf. But is there a difference between a flower that's been grown in the UK as to one that's been imported? Yeah, you're totally right. The The way it's happened with food as well, varieties have been thinned out and thinned out for the ones that travel the best. Just like with apples and tomatoes, we've lost all our heritage varieties because they don't store and travel well. So we only have a very small percentage available to us in the supermarkets. It's, it's unfortunate for the customer. They've got a choice of carnations, chrysanthemums, you know, and yeah. narcissi at this time of year. There's a very limited range. But the British flower array is is immense. We grow over 100 varieties. Now, some of them don't travel as well. You know, corn flower, they're easy to grow, difficult to harvest and handle. It's why you don't see them in many places. But we can sell them. The way we grow, the way we work with our suppliers is, is different. So, yes, the, the, the British flower crop is much better. I get the impression that... We have more natural, more local blooms. There's a more relaxed look to them. The varieties are better. They are more natural. They are open. They tend to be open flowers rather than in bud. So they benefit biodiversity much more. Yes, I, I like the fact that you mentioned the biodiversity in the open flower because, of course, one of the reasons we grow flowers is because they do attract pollinators. And how important their role is, these pollinators, in our own growing gardens. Exactly. So I would never, ever grow something that was a double, double something or sterile. So a, a, an insect couldn't access nectar and pollen. So I, I would, I, we really think hard about that. The other day I saw a sunflower seed for sale that was pollenless. And I oh. imagine a field of that, a field of pollenless sunflowers. It just, oh, I just, I shudder at the thought. So again, it's about the industry thinking, oh, this is what the customer wants. Brides don't want pollen on their dress. People with allergies don't want pollen. But actually, we're really affecting biodiversity and bees are so important. So we love the fact that all of our um, open grown flowers are accessible to, to all our lovely pollinating insects. And um, if I didn't cut any of my flowers, I'd still be doing good. Oh, that's so true. <laughs> that's so true. It's interesting. In the gardening world, I noticed that horticulturalists talk about flowers as ornamentals. And I hated that. It didn't sit happily with me because it was almost like they were slightly just there for decorative purposes, just to look pretty. 
And I thought, no, flowers do so much more, don't they? As you mentioned, they're part of the ecosystem that provides pollen and nectar for our pollinators, but also insects, which are part of a much broader ecosystem and the biodiversity. Yes, we've been talking to a lot of farmers lately because I do quite a lot of work with farmers um, and about in- introducing a cut flower crop to aid the pollination on their other crops to, and to give so biodiversity strips within their cropping fields oh how and interesting so, so they could grow them as a crop yes and and they can get they can get it's great for diversification they can get yields from it they is viable because we now have the market emerging so we really can talk about um, splitting up monocultures, adding biodiversity to, to farms, not just in field margins, but in, as part of the growing. And I think that's a bit of a game changer. Um, we've got to work out what, what crops can, be, can do that, you know, that can be easy to harvest. There are some that work better at field scale, but they're back to our traditional crops, things like sweet williams that we always used to grow well in on field scale. But statis can be grown easily in a field. Scabious can be grown easily on field scale. There's so sunflowers is a given because they do that anyway. But there is we've been working a lot with um, organic farmers to do that. Of course, it's, then you've got the environmental benefits of lower flower miles and growing flowers that suit the climate and the conditions. And also scaling up because farmers do it at a much bigger scale than we've got nine acres. But a farmer with 400 acres, even if they put a strip in each field, we've suddenly got a bigger market. So customers then can see it because visibility to customer, it's not all the customer's fault. The visibility to the customer, they can't choose what isn't there. So we have to be more present. We have to scale up. We have to be available to the customer so they can make an informed choice. I rather love that image because uh, package tours are sold to go to Holland to look at the bulbs in bloom, aren't they? And how lovely if people, as they're driving through the countryside and they see a field of of scabious or... Larkspur, Larkspur. There's so many that can be done. So that's what we're working on. Because for the best will in the world, there's a thousand at the moment members of Flowers from the Farm. We're small scale growers. We have a lovely local impact, but we can't impact quite so much on the, the bigger, you know, we can't get into supermarkets on our own but if we had more farmers joining us I think we really could make a bigger impact and take more of that 80% share there's so much to play for. Joe, tell me a little bit more about Flowers from the Farm. So it's um, an organisation that's been going over 10 years and it was set up by Jill Hodgson. There was definitely a yearning for something more local, something more pretty, something that we used to have a need from customers, but also from growers to do something different. So it started off as a network and friendship organisation, really, of of people with like minds who wanted to grow better and to provide more accessibility to cut flowers. It has boomed. We've got a lot of people who have changed careers into flower growing. Um, And now there's over a thousand members all around the country and we um, have got a really big voice so we're, we're really looking at how we can really make the most impact now and how we can spread that message and actually I have had a look at your website and one of the things I loved most was that I can find a local grower from it can't I yeah that's so that is our main aim at the moment is find your local flower farm and we use it as a, as a business ourselves some flower farmers are too small to, to deliver nationally so it's a great way to get that coverage 
And you do get a much more personal service from a local grower who really knows the area and is growing the best things for that locality as well. In fact, I'm talking later to Debbie Scott, who quite appropriately grows up in Scotland. (laughs) So we'll be hearing more about that later. But Joe, you run your own flower business for a number of years now. Tell us about organic blooms. Where and why did you start flower farming? Oh, yes, this is a good story. Um, I did a degree in horticulture um, at Reading University. I specialised in social and therapeutic horticulture. So I always knew that I wanted to work with people as well as plants. And I ran um, kind of projects for quite a number of years, working with people with learning disabilities, mental health support needs. We did gardening. We did growing. We did um, all sorts of things. We trained people in city and guilds. But um, in about 2004, I was at a friend's wedding and I looked at all of the flowers on the table and they were all British flowers. And I thought I could grow all of those. And what's more, I could grow all of those with people with support needs. So what is amazing about the British flower crop, it's a very accessible set of tasks growing cut flowers with a very high end product at the end. Now, that marries beautifully with all of my people with support needs saying we love gardening, but we want jobs. We want paid jobs that will make a difference to our lives. So I married the two together. And and my aim was eventually to have a really commercial product that we could sell that would then employ the people that I um, work with with support needs. That sounds really interesting. So it's a kind of joint venture. It's like a social enterprise. There is money to be made from it. But as you say, with this lovely product at the end of it. Absolutely. I mean, and the fact that because I am working with people who perhaps are not at industry speed, they might do things very carefully. People with autism and Asperger's are brilliant at seed sowing and precise work and really thrive on it. But they might not work at 100% industry speed. They might work at 60%. Now, I then therefore have to have a high-end product that that will almost compensate for that slightly slower speed. But the quality is there. Basically, Organic Blooms is our social enterprise. Enterprise. We employ eight people with support needs within that business. And, and NatureWorks, my original kind of project where we train people is kind of the stepping stone. So people come in who are quite unwell or, or have never worked and they get city and guilds training. They work within a real work environment of a flower farm. And then they aspire to jobs within Organic Blooms, which is the social enterprise bit. And I must say, it is wonderful. <laughs> I love it. I can hear that in your voice. It's lovely to hear. How important was organic to you? Um, it, it made a complete sense because um, we think about everything we do very carefully. Because of, we're working with vulnerable people, we never felt it was right to use chemicals anyway. But also we feel that um, we're growing a luxury crop. Now, I think the onus is even greater on the grower of a luxury crop to protect the environment. We cannot be wasting resources on something that we're not eating, uh, something that is decorative. And it needs to be enhancing the environment. So organic was our only option. You know, we it, it just made sense. And also flower crops don't actually require a hell of a lot of inputs. Ah, that brings me on to my next question, because what would you say are the main challenges of growing organically when you're growing flowers? The hardest thing is probably getting hold of organic seed because there isn't, a, there really isn't much at all. So I have to derogate everything. Bulbs are a bit of an issue because we still don't really know how many fungicides are used on bulbs. So there's a, a bit of a paper trail of derogations. It's hard bringing in stock plants. 
it takes three years conversion. So it's a bit of a just getting your head around it. But in terms of cultural challenges, there are, I don't have any <laughs> that, that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't, oh, that sounds awful, doesn't it? But because it works and it does take a while, but after about five years, perhaps more, I, I have got a balance between pest and predator. The, the soil fertility is, is good. There's resilience in our crop. We've had a really bad drought year last year and it was more resilient. We've got more organic matter in our soil. It's, it's less costly because we're not bothering with fertilizers or chemicals. It, it doesn't cost as much. It does feel right. And certainly we, we've had terrible aphid problems in the past in our polytunnels because we do have a lot of polytunnels. But we've worked out new ways of introducing biological controls and overwintering them and doing things that perhaps wouldn't be recommended because they say it would be too cold, overwintering my pest and my predator so that they're both ready to, to come up the next year. And um, it's working. And we, we are more tolerant. We accept a level of pest that perhaps other people don't. And so do our customers. If they see the odd aphid on an, an anemone, which on anemone and ranunculus are our worst for, for aphids, it, it, it almost guarantees they're organic, doesn't it? Well, um, that's so true. <laughs> if I've ever bought a lettuce, an organic lettuce, and I found a slug on it, I actually cheer. You know, yeah. I think, yes, this is grown in surreal soil. This has not been grown in a hydroponic greenhouse. That's right. That That is right. The colours are better in the ground as well, just like taste with food. Oh, that's interesting. We grow on a clay soil, quite a heavy clay, but we use a lot of organic matter. I mean, that's the basis for everything, really, for fertility management. A lot of our crops are meadow crops or prairie crops. So the Achilleas, the Yarrow family, the Scabious family, the Echinaceas, the Eryngiums. So all used to growing in not necessarily fertile soil, but competing with grass. And they are very robust. They are very tolerant. They're very good at using nutrition. They don't need a lot of nitrogen. They, they're really... So the perennials we grow a lot of perennials and they are the backbone so it's back to this what we talked about earlier is the supermarket straight stem out of season buying a rose in in bud form in december we're now moving away from that is what you're saying people are more interested in finding something that's more sustainable more local i think is the word we're looking for I definitely think there's a percentage of consumers who are definitely looking for that now and they do find their way to us. I think there's still a large education piece to be done. But I think if you put um, a supermarket bunch up against a bunch from a local flower grower, they're, they're different products. There is no comparison. The supermarket bunch might last two to three weeks, possibly. But we are getting good reports that ours are lasting a week to two weeks. And certain varieties, Sweet Williams, will last three weeks. But I, we also want to encourage, um, the, you know, a dynamic bunch, a bunch where the sweet pea might last three days. You know, the allium might last five. That You know, that, that, that people take out as things go over. They adjust their vase. We're looking at um, not a stagnant display that is the same and you almost have to touch it to check it's real. <laughs> I, I think there's beauty. There's ephemeral beauty, isn't there, um, in something that even drops a petal. I think that's something beautiful about a, a rose dropping a petal on your table. It's not all about everything has to last forever. It's about enjoying the beauty of it for when it's beautiful. But I think also what I like about it is that you're saying that there's more engagement. 
for the person who's buying the flowers that they understand more about what they're buying and they get involved, as you said, even in rearranging the the, the vase, you know, and taking out the dead ones and putting some fresh ones yeah. in. That yeah. engagement, it's just like the engagement with food. If you grow your own food, you're much more engaged in how you're going to cook it and eat it. That, that's totally right. And it's more mindful. I get we have to just break this conscious or unconscious buying of things because we've always done it that way. And it's just like our growing. I had to suddenly undo years of horticulture thinking, which I don't need to do it that way. Less is more. Um, and it's it's the same with how we treat flowers in our homes. Sometimes people just always buy them for the windowsill because they've always put them in that windowsill. Uh, my mother-in-law's classic for that. She always has to have a vase of something. And But actually, she doesn't even look at them. And they're the same for the two weeks. Whereas, like you say, engaging with that bunch, going back and, and looking at it and taking out the things that have gone over, that, that's a much more valuable experience, I think. I also, what I love about Flowers from the Farm, and it is across the country, isn't it? It's across the whole of the UK. Yes, it is UK wide and um, all the regions are very well represented, actually. But it's great that there's so many in Scotland and even Northern Ireland is represented. And it shows that you can grow flowers across all regions. That brings me very neatly onto my next guest, which is Debbie Scott, who grows flowers up in Scotland. But before I go, I just wanted to say thank you, Joe. It's been a delight talking to you. Organic Blooms, I'm guessing you've got your own website. We do, yes. Brilliant. So listeners can get in touch with you, but also more importantly, Flowers from the Farm website as well. Yes, have a good look. You can see all the growers profiled. It's You could spend a happy day looking through it. <laughs> but thank you ever so much. It's a delight as well to talk about flowers with you. you to come with me up to Scotland where we meet Debbie Scott, a flower grower who lives in East Lothian, the central lowlands of Scotland. Hello Debbie. Hello Sarah, nice to meet you. And you, how are things up there? What's the weather looking like? Beautifully sunny but we've had a very cold, cold snap last night so I'm going to go check on my plants after our conversation to make sure they made it through the minus temperatures again. <laughs> ah, such are the, the perils of flower growing, I bet. Actually that takes me on to the fact that many listeners are going to wonder now how you can grow flowers commercially when you're up at the top of the UK where summers are shorter and cooler. What's your secret? <laughs> no, that's that's nice. Um, I think what's interesting is I'm actually quite mild. Where I grow is quite mild comparatively, just slightly east of Edinburgh and in um, a sunny little spot where we don't get as much frost as other parts of Scotland. Um, but yes, no, it is. It, the light levels are are tricky and just trying not to get overexcited and actually plant too early. Um, you know, when you get started with your annuals and be aware of the light levels, just planning ahead. And we have beautiful shrubbery and we've got the, you know, the water. So, you know, you, you've got different different things that that work well but um, I do have two polytunnels and um, I do protect my plants with many many hoop houses which does help if I'm protecting a crop that I know I need for for a wedding or an event. Also it can be quite great for things that, that don't like to be too hot are, are good as well you know so so they'll do better here than they would do do further south. Give me so, an example. Well, the, the, the anemone, for example, I, I, I succession plant those. So I have some of them growing up until June and other people wouldn't have that. They don't like being above 15 degrees. You know, I'll have an autumn sowing, a spring sowing and a, and a late spring sowing. You know, I'm, I'm having plants for longer, which I think is really useful. OK, so from a growing point of view, what, what would you say your staple plants are? I'm guessing you've got a mixture of perennials and annuals. 
I've got a lot of different things. And actually, I think that's one of the benefits of being a small grower. I grow lots of different things so that if there is a failure in one crop, I have I have other crops that can fill those gaps. Um, I'm scaling up to about an acre now. And actually, that's made it makes any failures less risky. And it means that I've always got something to fill that gap. So, for example, I've always I've got a perennial now that's established that's in white and that my bride is looking for or my client is looking for. And that building of trust with my florist clients is, is one of the most important things of my business, I think. Consistency, I think, is is the key. I can't guarantee a flower, but I can guarantee a flower in a color palette. Um, and that kind of is taking the pressure off a bit. I found it stressful when I was started on point three of an acre because I, I, I didn't I didn't have that backup. But now that I've scaled up, I have those that option of having something else that I know will be coming along. Give us some names then of, of some of your plants that you love dearly and are very popular. Um, starting in spring, ranunculus and anemones, so Italian ranunculus, beautiful, flowery, extra petals. And they look so delicate and, and precious, but actually super hardy in the vase. So they have that double element. They can last up to two weeks in the vase if they're treated well. Anemones are are my one of my top flowers. The, the beautiful dark center and pastel range. And it, it's beautifully white but it has a slight styrations of of color coming through the veins and absolutely stunning fabulous so so those are those are big staples but actually i grow tulips as well but i always try and make them slightly different so the frostriana kinds the doubles the scented and you know they're things that you can't import also the way that i grow them they're double triple the size the flower heads compared to to things that are imported or hydroponically grown okay how do you manage that luck <laughs> um no um so i think the cold the cold helps you know it's like they're super cold i i feed them i do a no dig system where there's a lot of good nutrients going in and i've actually had to water them the year yes last year um, to get that stem length, to get that lovely juicy, juicy stem. But they're they're most beautiful when they grow in the vase and do interesting things. And my clients really enjoy the fact they're a bit different. What about foliage, Debbie? Because I would have thought that's a staple as well, isn't it? It is. There's there's lots of different things, but it's it's slow growing mostly. Uh, sort of the hedgerow look, but it's it's more the blossoms. Um, I've got a quince hedge that I, I cut from, and actually some of the things like sweet peas and things like that. Actually, the foliage is just as beautiful as the flower, and adds that kind of whimsical look. You know, the jasmines, the the trailing can add something to a bouquet that a perfectly straight stem they can't. But also I can cut branches from, you know, a tall cherry tree with blossom and they can be huge and structural and gorgeous. That's once again, you can't import those. And, you know, so that relationship with the florist or event florist or designer to create something a bit different and unique is 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 the extra that I can give. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. You touched yeah. on colour earlier. Are there fashions in colour? Do you find over the years it changes? Yes, but also I think I've learned to grow what I love and let people see the colours. So I but I like to offer a full range. I'm a real colourful person at heart. I like bold and bright and splashes and you know, even stripes, you know. Yeah, I can a, hear that. <laughs> in a bouquet, I think it pops. But also I need to offer weddings and events and pastels and so I want a full range of colours. Um, so that's why I say a sort of a colour palette of, of different things. Um, and when I'm making a bouquet or thinking about a bouquet, I'm thinking about the shapes and colours that go together. 
And sometimes that, that sharp contrast or trying to replicate nature, you know, I don't know, a geum which sits slightly above and sort of creates that meadow feel and then your focal flower is a bit further down. I think, yeah, so that's kind of that's kind of that natural look, I think, really, really suits the flowers. Um, and you work with florists, it sounds like, more than you work with individual clients. Yes. Um, before pandemic, that was exclusively really what I did. I worked directly with event florists and you know retail florists. I knew what their events were coming up, what colour palette they needed. But I think they liked that sometimes there would be grasses or interesting seed heads that um, that would would add a bit of difference, and they would describe to me what their client would want and I can go around the field and see what I think would be appropriate. And you get to know your client and build that rapport and relationship. And then then there's a trust built there. During pandemic, obviously, all that sort of fell away. And then I ended up doing more bouquets and, and delivering and things. And actually, yeah, I, I got I got into that and really was enjoying it. And now it's a balance between the two. I was going to ask you whether it really is just for the local Scottish market or do your flowers travel? Um, I I really focus on the local local market here. I'm very lucky to be near Edinburgh, which is a big centre, and lots of events are happening. Annie Slothian, lots of wedding venues, and and lots of wonderful florists that I work with. And also, I don't I I don't need to I don't need the stress of of posting them, because um, that brings that brings a different a different dynamic to to what you're doing. And I think my heart is in local and building that relationship with the flowers that I have here. But also that actually is a wonderful segue because I have something to talk to you about as well. I'm setting up a flower grower collective. I'm one of a member of five growers up in Scotland and we're trying to set up a Scottish flower uh, hub in Edinburgh. So we have a venue and one of the things that I want to be able to do is have a wider selection for florists and working collaboratively with other growers. For example, I have a really wonderful Estrantia grower who's near me. So I don't grow Estrantia because I know that she has a wonderful supply of that. And so working collaboratively and collectively, we can bring wider products to our florist clients who can then buy from one hub. What a brilliant idea. And also presumably lovely for you to be talking with other growers and sharing tips and ideas and whatever. That sounds so creative. It's wonderful. And I think what's really wonderful is that even within my area, we all grow such different things. And just that that slightly different growing space, a slightly different soil. You know, Astrantia doesn't love me, <laughs> but it loves <laughs> there. You know, so I think it's working to, to work what, what works best for you. The wonderful thing about Flowers from the Farm, that we wouldn't be together without that, is that sharing of knowledge and the generous, the generosity of everybody that I've worked with. And, you know, that willingness to help everybody move forward, knowing that it's a movement. It's not just it's not just one of us growing. It's all of us growing to create. Yeah, something something that everybody can can aspirationally want to do. I think gardeners by nature are generous souls. We love sharing. We love sharing plant seeds. We love sharing tips and advice. I I I think this fits in beautifully with it. Can I just move on slightly to something that Joe and I talked about earlier? And this was about challenging the unsustainable supermarket bunch. And I'm wondering if there's an issue with homegrown flowers that they don't quite look so supermarket shelf perfect. Let's put it that way. Because I know, for instance, the apples that I picked from my tree at home, they taste delicious because I've grown them, of course, but they're not as perfect looking as those on the shelves. Do you think this is an issue with homegrown flowers? I actually think I'm going to flip it on its head. I think that people see something that's more alive and more beautiful and unique. 
And sometimes I actually have people come to me and go, oh, I don't want perfectly straight. And I was like, I spent a wonderful time trying to make that perfectly straight. <laughs> but actually they want they want that interest and uniqueness in every STEM. And actually I, I celebrate that now. And I think um, we've gotten conditioned to, to look like the apple, not to have spots on it and things like that. But that's how nature is. I think we all need to embrace seasonality in every walk of life and celebrate what is current and available um, and not what, you know, what we think we should have at all times. That's so true. And I think also you've built a relationship. That's the other thing between the the grower and the receiver, which the supermarket system breaks that relationship, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I think, yeah, I I don't want to delve too too much into the negativity. I think it's, it's another offering. You know, I could say lots of negative things about that sort of way of doing it, but yeah. I think I don't want them and us because I can't fill that whole gap yet, but I'm working on it. Uh, and of course, people have been growing flowers locally over the centuries, haven't they? The supermarket model is a very recent one, a new one. It's very interesting you asked that, actually. I had the most wonderful thing happen approximately a year ago. I met a young lady uh, who, uh, whose granny used to, who used to live in the place where I'm now currently growing on the Lennox Love Estate. And she had a photograph of a, a portion of the area I grow in. And it was a chrysanthemum growing greenhouse. And I just had the most wonderful circular moment of it's meant to be. So what you're saying is that somebody was growing chrysanthemums for the flower market right where you are now. And of course, that could be replicated across the UK. There were local growers who were feeding local markets. We're talking about the fact that things are imported, but actually the industry was there for the 1950s. You know, there was a whole, you know, Covent Garden growing, you know, across the whole of the UK with small growers. Joe and I talked about the food system earlier. Absolutely. And I feel we're getting back to where things were, bringing back a sector that was thriving in the UK. And I'm so pleased to be part of that movement. Debbie, you mentioned something about seasonality. How do you cope with peak flower demands that fall outside the growing season? Now, I'm thinking back to February, we had Valentine's Day and then there's Christmas, of course, and New Year. These things are out of your natural growing season. How how do you cope with that? I think it's back to the seasonality and celebrating what we have. We'll start with Christmas, for example. I teach people how to make willow wreaths. And there's a wonderful willow grower near me. So beautiful colours activated by the frost. So the deep reds, the autumnal colours, but the pop of green. And so I teach them how to weave this space. And then everything is foraged from hedgerows and around about. I'm very lucky to be on an estate where I'm allowed to do that and have permission before they chop it all down with their big their big mower. Um, and so celebrating what we have, the cones and the, the interesting seed heads, the dried flowers that I've saved um, and dried through the summer, then add to, to that interest. And then absolutely gorgeous, beautiful pop of ribbon. And now for Mother's Day, just to keep the theme of sustainability as well ongoing, they can then use that and we're going to do a class and teaching people and we're going to wire muscarian bulbs to that and make it into a spring wreath. And so I think it's always just reusing what you have. And I had people come back from these workshops saying, oh, mine, mine lasted over three months. I'm still enjoying it. And then they just add different flowers. And um, Valentine's Day in terms of flowers is tricky, but there's things like bulbs and forced bulbs and um, paper whites in the house and things like that. So you can do that. But overall, I can just highlight to people that there's a gift voucher and you can get flowers in season when they're ready. 
Um, the other thing I did was a collaboration with another business here. It was like a, a beautiful pot with ranunculus and enemy seedlings in. Like somebody who loves gardening and then gets a beautiful pot that will become flowers eventually. And I think there's that connection there. So Debbie, I love the sound of that. I really do. And I think our listeners will as well. We're all keen gardeners. And the idea that you can move to grow your own. So I'm guessing quite a lot of your business is is for weddings, because we all know that weddings are days of great joy and flowers bring great joy. Tell me about your approach to weddings. So I think the brides that come to me are interested in sustainability and and do care about the environment, Um, but they still want beautiful, gorgeous, showstopper flowers that we can provide. And so then we're talking about how to make that happen. And actually, I do like a build. So one of my favorite ones from a year ago was creating a flower cloud, but it was quite foliage based and it was all sustainable materials. So moss and some wire and it was all wired in place and it just created a a wonderful backdrop for them. And we created two beautiful pillars, all reusable So once again, those were then moved to the venue from the wedding to the reception. I don't guarantee a flower now. I have done that before, um, but I found it too stressful and nature knows best. And so we discussed the general look and the feel. Is it pastels? Is it is it bold colours? And then I create a colour a color palette for them. I also look at the size of the bride and make sure, you know, what how their dress is. And so everything is, is curated and, and beautiful for them. But at the same time, they're always wowed by what they get, which I love. Um, oh, it sounds gorgeous. And I love that personal interaction. You know, you and the bride talking and you assessing every part of that day. So the flowers just enhance it. We come to the field and I think then they get that sense of where everything's coming from. Actually leads me on to tributes and funerals as well. And it is one of a wonderful thing to be able to do to celebrate somebody. And recently um, I was able to pick from somebody's garden who was a keen gardener and um, also a close friend and make something that represented them and their heart. And I just think that is that's something very special that I can do for somebody. But also you've developed the eye so you can see things. A lot of us would look at our garden and, and like housekeeping, we always look at the bits that need doing as opposed to the bits to celebrate. So, yes, talking about looking at gardens, Debbie, what words of advice would you give to us, us gardeners who just want a display of cut flowers through the year? We don't aspire to be flower farmers like yourself, but what would your key plants be? That's an interesting question because I did start in my garden when I, I met Jill Hodgson of Flowers from the Farm quite a few years ago now. I think it's knowing your garden. If you're a gardener, you already know what grows well and you probably have a range of different things. But if you're growing specifically for cutting I would catalogue it into your spring, your summer and, and your autumn and, and just to have that steady succession of, of the plants. You know, you've got your spring bulbs coming up, your ranunculus and enemies. I think give them a try. They can be a bit finicky, but once you get the handle of them, you'll fall in love. Having your biennials in for that for that gap sort of season, you know, um, and there's lots of lots of wonderful things in there. Your campanulas, um, sweet williams, totally fill a space and are wonderful in the vase and have an amazing vase life. But I think it's the interesting things that you have in your garden that you might not know are good for cutting. So you may be cutting them for, you know, pruning or whatever. Cut them, strip off the leaves, put them in the vase, and see how they last. The cut and comes are, I would say, when you're starting out because they're most satisfying because you, you can cut them and you, another flower is going to come behind it. Give me uh, some example. Keeping it simple, actually, calendula, 
scented geraniums for for the green, but also the scent. I love those um, feature fillers. Always sweet peas. So you've got the foliage, you've got the flowers from that, and you've got the scents and roses, of course. And lastly, dahlias, I would say, because then you've got that right up until the, the first big frost. Of course. When you're also thinking about your cutting garden, think about the bouquet or the style that you want in your house. Don't pick them in the middle of a hot day. So this is this is the actual key. So you can grow all these things, but it's it's cutting them at the right time, cutting them at their prime ripeness and conditioning them in a cool, dark place to recover. So you're thinking about your focal flower, your filler and your greens and some interest. Okay, I'm going to get you to say that again because that's fascinating. The focal flower? The filler, the foliage, a little pop of interest. Maybe it's a seed head. Then you've got a ready-made bouquet that you cut from your garden and then you can enjoy in your home. Debbie, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. I've learned something new and I always love doing that. If listeners want to contact you about flowers, how do they get hold of you? The best way is to look at the Flowers from the Farm website, which is flowersfromthefarm.co.uk to click find flowers put in the option of where you are and you'll find all your local flower farmers so you'll find somebody close to you thank you debbie (laughs) that's great and thank you for joining us it's been such a delight it really has thank you very much it was lovely to meet you and hopefully uh, we can we can share gardens in real life once sometime (laughs) oh i would love that thank you bye-bye bye And now it's time for the post bag. I'm joined by Chris Collins and Emma O'Neill, our head gardener. Hello, both. Hi, Fiona. Hi there. Okay, so first one, I like to save my own seeds for veg growing. Can I do the same for flowers? And if so, what are the easiest flowers to start with? Emma, have you got some thoughts on this? Yeah, there's an abundance of things that you can save and you can definitely do it with flowers. So I would recommend to start things like digitalis, which are foxgloves. Nicotiana, commonly known as the tobacco plant, Calendula, pot marigold, and Antirhinums, snapdragons. They're some of the easiest things to do. And how do you know they're ready to save? Chris, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I tend to wait till they're dried up. I mean, my, my seed saving tends to revolve around my allotment and my hardy annuals. I'm always going on about my hardy annuals, never shut up about my hardy annuals. And when they get to the end of the season, I like to, you know, I don't want to pay from the following year. I'll wait till the flowers are browned up, so they're dead, basically. I'll just cut the top off, cut them off, got them in a big bunch, take them into the shed, and then I'll gradually just tap the seed out. And the way I'll do that, this could be a poppy or an English marigold, a calendula. I'll get a white piece of paper and I'll just get the seed head over, tap it, and you'll find the seed drops onto the paper. I can then bag it and put it in Tupperware for the following season. Particularly useful for things, I mean, Emma mentioned one there, like digitalis, because the seed is minute, but you'll find that it just taps out when it's ready. So take the flower head when it's dead, when it's looking all brown and dry, Bring it in, tap it out over a white piece of paper, then you can put it in your Tupperware, label it, and you're ready for the following year. Okay, it's all about getting organised, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is indeed. Get that's got to keep that shed in tip-top condition, Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Emma, um, I'm going to ask you this one. I make my own comfrey feed, which I use on my veg patch. This year I've created a cut flower patch for the first time. Should I be feeding these too? And if so, what feed should I use? It really depends on the soil. So it's all about soil health. If you've got really great soil, then you shouldn't need to feed them. They do, however, like good fertility, and that will obviously help increase your blooms. 
So always look at the soil health and always try to mulch them. And I think Chris probably would be a better place to tell you about feed. Well, obviously with my container gardens, my balcony, uh, they're very essential to it. The success is actually based around the feeding. So what I tend to do actually at the start, I love comfrey. Uh, um, it makes a great feed, but I tend to at the start, I prefer to use uh, seaweed extract. And the reason for that is quite simple, is that it contains a lot of trace elements, manganese and borum and zinc and stuff like this. And a lot of, lot of fertiliser doesn't have that. So it tends to give the plants a much stronger start. They tend to be uh, you know, stockier and, and bat off pests and disease a lot easier. So I start with that and then I'll move over to the comfrey uh, about sort of mid-June, maybe early June. And that's got a lot of potassium in it. It's very high in potassium, potash, and that's very good for encouraging the plants to flower. So two sort of phases, really. Seaweed, early start of the season, and then move on to your comfrey a bit later. Okay, so make sure those containers are, you know, properly supported with that feed. But if it's in your garden and you're looking after your soil, then feed not so necessary. Okay, that's really interesting. Okay, let's carry on by thinking about some more flowers. And um, we've got a question from someone who's added a lot of bulbs, including daffodils, alliums and tulips to their garden last autumn. So what special care do they need to keep those bulbs coming back year after year? Chris, have you got uh, some advice here? Yeah, well, rule one really is um, is don't deadhead too early. Don't cut them down too early. I think a lot of people go, oh, they look a bit messy now, the flower's over. They get them, come along with a mower and shave them all off. If you do that, if they're a naturalised bulb, which means they could be growing in a border or in the in a lawn, they just won't flower next year. You need to let the bulb reabsorb the energy from the foliage. So the general rule is about five to six weeks, I think, and then you're guaranteed you can then cut them back and they'll flower the following year. I think in olden days, <laughs> I remember being on the parks um, when we had to get everything neat, neat and tidy all the time. We used to cut them, we used to tie them, sorry, into figure of eight. So we'd get the foliage. Some of our listeners might have seen this and literally tie them up. So there were these little neat bundles in the border. Seems a bit excessive nowadays. I can think of better ways to spend my time, but you know, some people like to be tidy. I'd rather leave it for as a cover for our insects and our beetles and our and our bees personally. But the big thing is, is don't cut them down too early. Leave them at least five or six weeks and they will reflower. Daffodils, crocus, plants like that really um, quite easily naturalise. You can put them in the lawn, peel back some, some grass, plant them in, put the grass back again and they'll come through. Tulips, not so much. Um, they tend to be he heavily hybridised. So you might get a good few years out of them but eventually they fizzle out. But um, as with my container gardens, I never let a bulb go to waste. I'll wait till they're about five weeks in after they finish flowering. It'll get lifted out of the containers. You can either put the container to one side in a frost-free place, let it flower the following year, or do what I do, go out and grill a garden, just plant them in the verges, so at the back of the car park where you know those little neglected spaces people don't use, and then they'll naturalise and set in. And actually... If I look out my window now, I can see all the ones I put in the last couple of years and it's looking nice and colourful. Golly. So just to pick up on this word naturalised, so you're leaving them in year on year um, and and that means they spread um, in basic terms. But but why do we call it naturalising? Well, I suppose you're just leaving the plant to its own device, you know. So it, it, that's you're exactly right. They thicken out. It's actually worth mentioning. Um, we're obviously interested in organic bulbs, which are not so easy to get hold of. And also uh, they may be a little bit more expensive. But if you naturalise, which you plant them in a border or plant them in a lawn, let them get on with it themselves. Let them, you know, act naturally basically without our interference they'll actually start to propagate themselves as well so you, after about five six years you can actually lift them and you've produced your own organic bulbs so it's quite a good idea to naturalize because you increase the numbers but you really are at the end of the day just letting plants do what plants want to do yes absolutely i mean that's the thing that makes them look so 
brilliant, doesn't it? Because then when they come up, they actually just look you know, like they've always been there. It's absolutely fantastic. Emma, what have you had to do in this realm? I mean, when it comes to bulbs, how do you look after them? Because ours tend to be more within the borders, we would feed them once they've completely finished flowering so that they're getting all the stuff going back straight into the bulb. And as Chris mentioned with tulips, we would tend to replace ours every year. The exception being the species tulip, which come back year on year. I tend to find that those look better in containers because they're so small. So you can really see what they look like up close and personal. <laughs> You've got a nice one flowering at the moment, haven't you, in the, in, at Wrighton? I saw the other day. What was, this, what was that species? So that is Tulipa Turkestanica. Turkestanica, yeah, very beautiful, quite delicate and small, and not yeah, like the big blousy, delicate. not like the big blousy hybrids. They're kind of, you yeah. know, a bit more subtle. Gosh, who doesn't love a tulip? Wow. Okay, um, sticking with flowers, I love to grow cut flowers, but I also enjoy them in the garden. Are there any rules about how many blooms should be cut from each plant or how often I should cut it um, in order to allow it to keep producing as many blooms as possible? Emma, this is really your uh, area of specialism. You're a, a flower fanatic, aren't you? Yes, I love the flowers, I have to say. And we've got a really beautiful ornamental garden here, so I'm very lucky. There aren't really any hard and fast rules. What I would say, though, is timing of when you pick your flowers is important. So to pick them either first thing or last thing at night. If you're picking from annuals and biennials, it's always best to go for the leader first, and that will force the plant basically to clump up, get more branches out and then produce more flowers. Obviously, you don't want to take them all off in one go. I tend to think little and often is far better. I would always plunge them in some water before I'd arrange them. You just want to get them acclimatised, really. Also, what that does tend to do is if, if like us, you get a lot of pollen beetle, it allows the pollen beetles to get out before you get them in the house. Right. OK, Absolutely. Good plan. You don't really want them all across the worktop. Yes, no, no one wants a pollen beetle in the house, mate. No. <laughs> Another great question here. I used to love giving flowers as a gift, but I've tried to do this less due to the environmental impact. Can you recommend a flowering house plant that would make a good gift instead? Chris. Yes, certainly. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, we don't really associate houseplants with flowers, do we? It's normally foliage, but there are some good ones there. Ones that are quite readily available. The ones that spring to mind for me is the first one would be Anthirum, or I think it's called the Flamingo Flower. Maybe that's one of its common names. And you'll know it because it has this very bright red or bright pink waxy flower. It's South American, I think, rainforest sort of tropical plant. Very easy to grow as a houseplant. Likes a little bit of sort of, doesn't like direct light. So you can put it away from the window and it flowers pretty well continuously. The other one that springs to mind is spathiphyllum. Sorry for the big words, but this is like the peace lily, you might know. And that has a white flower cupped, an aroid type flower, which is cupped with a centre, sort of upright centrepiece. And that's very beautiful. That's also a forest floor, so it doesn't need masses of direct light. And that's got these long sort of spear-shaped leaves as well. But flowers pretty continually. Beautiful, very bright, bright, intense white. And the other one is a good old classic windowsill plant, um, which is St. Paulia or the African violet, which is flowers with these lovely clumps of different types of sort of purpley and sort of light blues. And they're very, very easy. You can just put them on the windowsill and they'll go off and, and they'll flower pretty continually. So they're pretty, they're three good ones, I reckon. I've got them all growing in the flat here. Can I just ask, Chris, you've mentioned plants from all around the world there. And of course, we're trying to get away from plants or flowers that might have been flown in yeah. so 
What about, you know, things that are that are grown here? Well, there's two good things going on here, really. One is the, the sort of massive renaissance houseplants have had in the last few years. You know, um, a lot of young people are sort of getting into gardening through houseplants, which is really good. So there's, all, there's companies sprung up which will propagate and pop them up in peat-free soil that you'll find online. So my suggestion is go and have a rummage around on the internet and have a look at those small companies that are producing houseplants that are propagated in the UK and also growing in peat-free compost. So there you go. The other thing is, is you also propagate yourself if you like. Uh, Spathide film I mentioned divides pretty easily, so you can take it out its pot. If you've got a friend who's got one, take it out its pot and divide it up. This is a good time of year to do that. Or you can do little leaf cuttings on St. Paulius. So you take a leaf off of the petiole, that's the leaf stem, put it in a nice sandy compost and you might get that to root with a bit of luck. And that's quite a nice thing because that means you can pass your plant on to other people. So definitely, you can have a look online, have a little look at propagation. But there are certainly, they're just three of really good plants that will flower for you in the house. But uh, there'll be others too. Okay, a final um, question that, that I think is a really good one. I only have a small garden, so everything I plant needs to bring different benefits. What flowers would you recommend that have multiple uses, including attracting biodiversity? So I'm going to go to Emma first on this one, I think. So there's several flowers and we always like to get more bang for our buck here. So <laughs> I'd start with comfrey because, as you know, that has a really important place with us at Garden Organic. But that's great for attracting pollinators. Um, it's great to make feed from, also a compost activator and you can use it as a mulch. Sunflowers, because not only are they beautiful, they provide some much needed height in the garden which can then also be used as shade over some of your lower plants. We've tended to plant them before to shield spinach because, as you know, they can bolt quite readily in the sun. Um, nasturtiums, we tend to use them as a ground cover plant, but you can also use them to attract pollinators. All of the parts of the plant are edible. And also we have used them as a sacrificial plant and what I mean by that really is that they really do attract black aphids, the black fly. So you can keep them off your peas and beans if you've got nasturtiums around them. And grasses are the other thing. They often are really architectural, provide movement in the garden, and they're great as winter habitats. Oh, gosh, I'm really imagining all these things. They're going to look <laughs> absolutely gorgeous, aren't they? What about you, Chris, in your container garden? Yes, yeah, so it's a little bit more challenging, I suppose, because you are, you know, you're dealing with smaller spaces. But I've got two plants I recommend that really do bring in the bees and the hoverflies. The first one is the dead nettle, Lamium maculata, which is like a silver and green sort of ground cover plant, very delicate. It throws up these little pink uh, flowers, especially early in the spring and into the spring. And that the bees absolutely go mad for that plant, and I have that um, in most of my pots in small clumps, so they it joins in with the the veg and the, the the more bedding sort of more flashy plants as well so that helps attract and also lavender plant a couple of lavenders i mean i remember having two uh in pots at my last property and at, at the doorway and it was like a bee rave i tell you in the summer when they <laughs> flowered you could you could just get down close to them and the whole thing would be buzzing i think some veg as well i think runner beans are very good for bees and hoverflies they'll they'll go onto those flowers so you can you know have a practical means as well I think what you've got to watch for, the big rule, I suppose, is be careful how hybridised the flowers and the plants you've chosen. So by that, I mean a lot of bedding plants have had the pollen bred out of them. So they're in a way, they're kind of, I call them the living dead because they can't produce seeds. They've been, because of hybridisation and genetic interference, they won't produce pollen, they won't produce seeds. So they look great, they flower all summer, and that's why it's done. But you're not going to get any biodiversity out of them. So just be a bit careful 
about um, what what plants you're choosing. You want them to be pollen rich. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I have always heard that double flowers aren't much good either. Emma, can you explain why that's the case? It's not so much that they're not much good it's more about the accessibility so I had to do a little study on some daffodils funnily enough and you can quite clearly see when you cut them off that the pollen and nectar are just not so readily available to the bees and the hoverflies and things so that's why really we'd always recommend sort of single open flowers where possible okay so they just can't get to the pollen that's the yeah, point you just can't get to it um wow thanks ever so much Chris and Emma I'm absolutely enthused now to to get more flowers into my garden after all that um, advice and, and information absolutely brilliant thanks ever so much see you next time Bye. cheers thanks for listening to our april podcast many thanks to joe and debbie for joining us for this month's cut flower special you can find out more about flowers from the farm by visiting their website which has the same name and if you'd like to be inspired by our lovely ornamental garden looked after by emma here at Wrighton, then do book in for a tour Or, if you're a member of Garden Organic, why not sign up to come along to our AGM on May the 18th, which we're holding here. You can find out more on our website, gardenorganic.org.uk. We'll be back next month. Until then, why not check us out on social media if you're looking for a little bit of inspiration as you make the most of spring. We're at Garden Organic UK. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music. That's it. Until next time. 